Good heavens, it's the Bobcast. Welcome to episode 34. I hope you're all doing well out there during these strange times. Uh, here in Australia, of course, we're slowly emerging from our cocoons. Not, not so much like the uh, graceful butterfly, mind you. It's a bit more wary and careful than that, which I think is as it should be. As someone who has been virtually unemployed for the last two months and a, and a bit, I'm very much of the opinion that we should get this next stage right the first time. And if that means taking it slowly, then okay. That's my opinion. It's taking it slowly, getting it right the first time. It's going to get people like me who play music for a living and people like a lot of you out there who love going out to gigs back where we belong sooner rather than stuffing it up and having second waves and going back into isolation again. I Personally, I do not want to go back to where we've been over the last two months. I want to see both my kids going to school every day. I want to be announcing shows to go with this new record that I've made, which, by the way, uh, is being mixed as we speak, which is very exciting. Uh, for those of you who may be new to this podcast, welcome. Uh, I was in the studio in mid-March when things started locking down and gigs started getting cancelled. So I went pretty much from the studio into lockdown and have remained here ever since. So it's put my album back a couple of months, but things are moving again, which I'm so happy and excited about because the last two months I've been at home with the kids doing their home learning. My youngest just started back at school this week, actually, uh, but my oldest daughter uh, doesn't go back to the week after next. So things are starting to change slowly. Hey, Thanks for listening to the podcast again and the COVID specials with my good mate, Josh Pike. You know, it would be awesome if you could rate and review the podcast favorably. If you've been listening, if you've been enjoying it over on iTunes, I'd really appreciate it. Especially now because someone just gave me my first one-star review complaining that the last few episodes have been boring because they've had the same guest, Josh. Now look, I'm basically an unemployed guy in lockdown, spending a few a few hours every week or so of my time making a podcast for my own fun, but also to share with anyone who might be interested for free. So if you don't like it or think it's boring, just don't listen to it. Don't give me a one-star review. That is not helping. If an unemployed guy... Look, if an unemployed guy, right, was giving away free cheese sandwiches, was making free cheese sandwiches because he just loved it, and he's handing out free cheese sandwiches. And I was eating those cheese sandwiches. And then after a few days, I was getting bored of taking them and eating them. You know what I would do? I'd just, I'd just throw my unfinished sandwich in the bin and I would stop taking them. I wouldn't go back and complain about the free sandwiches always having cheese in them. And, you know, could we have some pickles in it next time? That would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? <sighs> anyway. Fortunately, I'm privy to the download stats of this podcast, and the last four COVID episodes with Josh have all had above-average downloads. So I know a lot of people have been enjoying them. A lot of people have been writing in and telling me so. And I reckon Josh and I have still got a couple, at least a couple more left in us, uh, depending on you know how the future turns out. So um, I'm looking forward to doing more of those. So that all brings me to episode 34 and my guest, Rowan Connolly. I've decided to do another podcast going back to the, the original format, not because old mate on iTunes gave me a one-star review, but because I want to, for fun, uh, because I wanted to talk to Rowan Connolly, and he agreed. 
Um, Rowan is a long-time journalist in AFL football and music, Tragic, who I've followed for a while and I really enjoy, not just because of his footy and music passion and knowledge, but also for his progressive political stance, which he's not shy about sharing on Twitter, and I love it. If you don't like AFL, that's cool. You may find us talking about that subject and find it uninteresting. That's fine. Tune out, fast forward, whatever. However, Rowan is a music nerd on a par with any other guest I've spoken to on this podcast. And we talk about some music on this episode that has never come up before on this show. So, look, I had a really enjoyable chat with Rowan. It was great to talk to him. He was really generous with his time. He's got some great stories to tell. And I think a lot of you are going to really enjoy this chat. So, settle yourselves in for a little bit of episode 34 of... Good heavens, it's a Bobcast. Thanks so much for joining me on the Bobcast, Rowan. It's lovely oh, to... Pleasure, pleasure to be here. It's lovely to... Uh, we, we've never actually met in real life, but it's nice to meet you over the phone in this, in this, in this way. Um, how, how is everything going? I mean, I, I, I feel like it would be remiss to start this podcast without um, talking about all things coronavirus, seeing as it, it is the uh, dominant uh, subject of the day. What... What is your what are your days look like at the moment and what have the last two months kind of been like for you going through all the different challenges of coronavirus? Oh, look, I've got to be honest, from a uh, both a professional and personal perspective, it's been it's been pretty good. Um, it, look, it, it's probably disrupted my lifestyle less than a lot of people because I essentially uh, work from home. Mm. Um, so that hasn't really altered and a lot of the most of the work I do apart from covering games of football obviously there haven't been any of them but um, you know I, I a lot of the work I do just involves reading a lot and writing a lot and talking to people and all those things I've been able to keep doing yeah. um, I do a couple of podcasts uh, they've been done remotely which you know it's not ideal but it's it, it seems to work well enough um and I've, I've been doing a lot of video stuff too which i can also do at home and look to be honest from a personal perspective i mean i'm a man in his mid-50s now so i'm not exactly <laughs> not exactly out painting the town right. on weekends so, right okay um, so you're not you're not missing the sort of not being able to uh you know go to nightclubs and uh restaurants and all that kind of thing is what you're saying no those those <laughs> oh, oh look i you know i don't mind going out to the odd restaurant sure. but um uber eats is pretty handy i can yeah. tell you that I've, I've certainly made good use of that Oh, I, look, I get very jealous when people start talking about Uber Eats because I live in Ocean Grove and you can't get it here yet. Ah, uh, right, yeah. It's been so weird, like um, watching. I mean, let's talk about yeah. Let's 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 talk about footy because an AFL uh, for for those outside of uh, the uh, Southern States. Um, 
it's just been so weird watching, you know, and, and you would be part of this too because of your, you know, with your podcast, um, all of the um, shows on TV or on the internet or wherever that have, you know, had to tr- maintain content when there's no oh. games going on. It's been so weird. Like, what? How do you how do you deal with that situation? <laughs> uh, I, well, I tell you, you you've inadvertently stepped on a real hobby horse, right? Because <laughs> one one of the things I've discovered whilst the games haven't been on is, or not discovered, but it's sort of reaffirmed it to me, is just how much crap exists now in between the games. <laughs> and it's sort of like the the football media industry has become this enormous beast and it, it has to be fed. And so, yeah, without the games, it's been a lot harder for people. And, and some of the stuff that's been churned out in the name of content has just been... <laughs> Infantile. What are some? Know, what, what's um, one of what's some of your uh, highlights slash lowlights in that regard, Rowan? Oh uh, well, there was one the other night. I sounded off about on Twitter. There was a, a discussion on Footy Classified about whether Max Gorn's new haircut was becoming for a club captain. You know, and just stuff like that. Um, it's I, I've actually found it. Look, I'm I love footy history and uh, I love my nostalgia and stuff. And one of the really good things during this layoff has been, um, you know, like Fox footy, for example, and channel seven and the AFL website, they've been forced to sort of delve into the archives Mm. and replay great old games and stuff. And that's, that's sort of uh, almost my bread and butter, you know? So um, I've been loving that. And funnily enough, you know, for the last, 10 years, you know, I've been trying to interest various media outlets in, you know, programs about nostalgia, right. flashback type stuff. And and the answer you always get is, oh, you know, the new generations don't care. They don't care about history. And, um, and it's sort of been disproved, I think, because they've been putting on these old games and they've been, you know, they've been raiding their socks off yeah. and everyone's, t- everyone's talking about them and, um, but uh, to me, that's that, it is quite a serious issue because I think if the sort of younger generations, how are they going to develop anything like the same passion for and love of the game that my generation had if they're not sort of acquainted with the history? Mm. And that whole that whole marketing of football as a sort of alternative form of entertainment, um, it really gives me the shits, to be honest, because... You know, I saw a comment from Eddie Maguire the other day. You know, we're up against Netflix and we're up against restaurants. And, well, you really not it because, you know, people into footy and people that are really hardcore footy fans, they have a, a connection to the game that goes way beyond a disposable piece of entertainment. Mm. You forget about five seconds after you finish watching it. Okay, and yeah. I, I think that's always been one of the unique things about Australian football and I think it's something the games administrators really need to push a lot harder than they do but yeah it's a very sort of narrow focus in the thinking I think sometimes these days and that worries me about the future you know I just think well you know after I've dropped off the face of the earth you know will will subsequent generations have anything like the same level of attachment to the game that that me and my peers have and i i fear not yeah i mean i wonder if it's kind of a similar kind of story with me you know with music how you know like you when you first uh when you know i first started getting into music it was always it was all about what was current at the time we're talking sort of late 80s and going into the 90s and then it wasn't it was sort of developing a real 
passion and to the point of obsession with music that by the time I got into my late teens, early 20s, I started to discover that there was this all this huge back catalogue of music from over the last decades of, of stuff going right back to the 60s. And there was so much gold in there. And, and slowly over time, I started finding that I was discovering more uh, stuff that I liked from going backwards than I was from keeping up with everything that was current. And so I suppose if people develop a passion for something, I think in some ways it may be inevitable that they're going to want to go back and trace back the lineage of the things that they like now, um, especially with football, with clubs and stuff too. I mean, if you're just getting into football now and you know you develop a passion for a particular particular club, like surely you're going to want to just like uh, eat up all of the history of just at least your club that you're going for, mm. right? Oh, absolutely. Look, I, I actually think, and they're probably my two greatest areas of interest, but I think there's very strong parallels between music and football in, in exactly the regards you're talking about. And a good example for me is, you know, when I was growing up, a lot of it's got to do about lifestyle and the amount of options that people have now. And, and you can't really change that. And that applies to a lot of things. But like just to take music as an example, um, you know, I, my family always had a strong interest in music so that helped but I remember you know in my mid to late teens you know me and my my group of close friends we, we were obsessed with music and we we had our favorite bands and when we got old enough to go and start seeing gigs and stuff we we would regularly go and see you know three or four gigs a week and yeah. the scene was so strong in Melbourne that you, you could go and see two or three, you know, really well-known bands play just in a suburban pub. Yeah. And more than that, though, like the outlets for um, exposing that were very, very mainstream and popular. So, for instance, with with music, you had uh, 3XY, which was the, the big radio station here, and you had Countdown. And um, everyone, you know, everyone I went to school with watched Countdown and you'd go to school and on the Monday and you'd, you'd have a discussion about what was on Countdown and, and uh, on the very slim chance you might actually like some of it because I, I, this is an ongoing joke with me about <laughs> Molly, Molly Meldrum's appalling musical taste. But, um, so hang on, was, was Countdown know, on a Saturday night? No, Sunday night. Oh, it was Sunday, Sunday night, night okay. And everyone, so everyone rocked up to school on Monday morning and... Yeah, everyone had yeah. watched it. Yeah, but but we, um, you know, we we had various bands that we absolutely loved, and like for example, Midnight Oil. Um, I reckon me and my mates went and saw them live at least thirty something times. Yeah. Um, in nineteen eighty two, they played three nights in a row at the Astor Theatre in St Kilda, and we went to every show. The next year, they played five nights in a row at the old. Um, tennis centre, oh, not tennis centre, the swimming pool, which is now Collingwood Footy uh, Club's yeah. home. Yep. Um, and we went to every one of those shows. Uh, and not just the big bands either. We, I was heavily into a band that actually came from Tasmania called Mio 245. And oh, wow, they, okay. were, they, were, um, they were big for a little while in about 1980, 81. And we used to go and see them all the time. Um, who else? Uh, 
yeah, I've got a few skeletons in the closet. <laughs> well, so, well, to, so. Let's 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 delve back. Let's go right back. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah so, sure. So um, you are clearly born in Melbourne. Yeah. <clears throat> Lived in Melbourne your whole life. Yep. Yep. Uh, born in 1965. Yep. My parents were from Perth, but um, by the time they had me, they'd moved over here. Right. So yeah, I was the youngest of four kids uh, a bit of a gap between me and the others but um yeah uh, 1965 in melbourne yep so what's your what do you have you got like an earliest sort of music memory did you did you grow up in a a, a very musical household yeah i did um my dad absolutely loved classical music and played it every day um my mum um developed this huge obsession with uh latin american culture and was hugely into like flamenco music um yeah she did a lot of traveling in south america and and spain as well so yeah we had classical music going we had like flamenco stuff was she into a much um like a brazilian like bossa nova music and like latin jazz and stuff like that you know, to be perfectly honest, I, I never got interested enough to specify. <laughs> that's, but, a, uh, <laughs> that's like a little. That's like a little niche uh, musical genre that um, very few people know that I'm really, really into. Um, yeah, okay, yeah, right. <laughs> only... I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying to remember some of the stuff that she played, like the names of some of the artists. But yeah, I, flamenco. I, I do remember that being a particular interest for her. Um, and my, uh, yeah, my. Brother and sisters, they're all about sort of five, six years older than me, and but they were all pretty close in age, and they all listened to a lot of the same stuff: um, Lou Reed, Velvet Underground, uh, the Stones, the Beatles. Yeah. Um, the bit, look, I, I've got two um, prominent music memories as a small kid. The first is. I, I'm, I'm almost certain that the first rock song I ever heard, and I, I can remember because I used to go around singing it in my head for weeks and weeks, was um, Turn Up Your Radio by the Master's Apprentices. Okay, yep. Um, that came out in 1970 when I was five. Um, and then I got given a, for my, I think, sixth birthday, I was given um uh, Proud Mary by Creedence Clearwater Revival. Right. Um, and I loved that. And it had, uh, then I got another, I got given another single, which was uh, Looking Out My Back Door, and I had Fortunate Son as a B side. And that really set me off on an obsession with Creedence. Nice. And, <laughs> and so by the time I was nine, uh, I had every album they made, which was, I think, about six or seven. Um, I can remember they actually came out here in 1972 and I was desperate to go to the concert and I couldn't get anyone else in the family to go with me and so I missed out and I was devastated and then about a month after that they split up and I remember wailing about it. Where did they, where were they playing? uh, They played at Festival Hall. Because I get the impression because, you know, I was born in 77 so I kind of missed it. But yeah. um, uh, the the music teacher at my high school who taught me my first six months of guitar, sort of just getting the only lessons I've ever taken, just kind of getting me started with chords and stuff like that. He yeah. the first songs that he taught me to play were Credence songs, and yeah. given his age, I reckon he clearly he would have sort of grown up listening to them as a young man. Um, 
and he even looked like someone from Credence, you know. He's, he's, <laughs> like even in, he was one of the few people in the in you know in the early nineties that was still rocking a you know really decent moustache, and yeah. Uh, uh, and yeah, and so I got the impression that there was a period of time in the seventies where Credence Clearwater Revival must have been one of the biggest bands on the planet, right? Oh, they were. They were massive, and they were they were really prolific. So, like they their first album came out in sixty seven. Um, they split up in '72, so they were they were only around for like five years. But wow. um, during that period, I'm just trying to count them off the top of my head. They had a a self titled album, um, Bayou Country, Green River, Cosmos Factory, Pendulum, uh, Willie and the Poor Boys. Um, <laughs> uh, I reckon at least seven or eight albums over that five year period. And yeah, they were. They were massive um, yeah. and big even here. Yeah, like Proud Mary was a song that got heaps of airplay here. And a really interesting band. I mean, I my favourite Creedence stuff tends to be the sort of the album tracks more than the singles. Right. You know, there was, a, there was a real, you know, sort of like that swamp rock, yes. almost, that yeah. sort of su- southern US sound, even though they were from LA, I think, or, yeah, or California. Right. But... Yeah. Um, yeah, they had a real sort of dark, brooding sound about them too. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I still play them a lot. But that I always feel like being so heavily into them got me off to a, a great start. And it was sort of underlined to me that I was a bit different. I remember in grade two, um, <clears throat> one day for show and tell, the teacher asked us all to bring in a record. And um, all the other kids sort of bought in, oh, you know, Disney storytelling stuff sure, yeah. and I, I i bought in looking out my back door and fortunate yeah. son you know? <laughs> i think the teacher was impressed but i don't know about the rest of my classmates <laughs> i reckon uh, bad moon rising was probably the first song i ever performed to an audience oh, yeah. where, to yeah, yeah. you know to parents at a you know half yearly kind of music <coughs> yeah. class you know recital or something like that you know well it would have been a lot easier to learn than stairway to heaven or yes exactly yeah. yeah, three chord songs you know they were pretty accessible um so music also too and i you know um almost em- embarrassed to admit this but i didn't realize until i saw you tweet about it recently that your uh brother steve played in with paul kelly yeah, um, yeah, in the very early days. Now, is that something you you feel comfortable talking about? Or oh yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, no. Look, Steve. Um, Steve basically taught himself to play guitar um, in his mid-teens. So you know, we're talking about the oh, mid seventies. Um, taught himself. Uh, he put together the first band he put together was called Cuban Heels, and they played around Melbourne from 79 to about 81. Um, that band was also notable for having Spencer Jones in it. Um, right. And Spencer was sort of a lifelong family friend, you know, always round at our place. And um, and Cuban Hills, oh, you know, they were sort of well-known enough to be a, a recognised Melbourne pub band, only ever put out a single. Um but after that, he put together another band called uh, Rare Things, and he played in a ba- another band called The Zimmerman with a guy called John Dowler, who was a bit of a Melbourne music scene figure. Uh, was was The Zimmerman a reference to uh, Bob Dylan? I presume so. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I did go and see most of those bands, but geez, it's a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
And then, you know, I think he he certainly played a lot of gigs and, you know, the scene wasn't that big, so everyone sort of got to know each other. And I can't remember how Paul uh, sort of met up with Steve, actually, but um, he first... Paul had disbanded the Dots, his first band, and he was working on a whole lot of recording stuff. And he got a residency up in some pub up in Townsville, and he needed he needed to put a band together. And um, so, however that happened, I'm not sure, but he heard some of Steve's stuff, and he asked Steve to go and play this residency with him, and they did that. And then. Um, Paul recorded his solo album Post and uh, he asked Steve to play on that wow. and he did. And then um, after Post, the essentially the oh, – I wasn't completely the same band, but he put together the Coloured Girls. Um, so the Coloured Girls was, uh, yeah, Steve on lead guitar, um, Pedro Bull was the keyboard player, Michael Barclay on drums, uh, John Schofield on bass. Um and, yeah, the Coloured Girls, uh, who became the Messengers, um, and the reason they had to change their name was they were touring the US mm. and um, the Coloured Girls would have been a bit racially insensitive. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, they played as a band from 84 to 92. And I, I, I look, my favourite Paul Kelly album by a long way is Gossip, which oh, was yeah. the, the first album. The Colour Girls did, but they did quite a few. They did Gossip and then Under the Sun after that, and then there was So Much Water, So Close to Home, and then Comedy. So, yeah, four albums they did together over that eight-year period and a heap of touring. You know, they toured the US a couple of times. Um, Steve went to live in Sydney. The band all lived in Sydney. Um, And, yeah, look, they are really, really fond memories for me because – Look, to be honest, my my taste. I remember the first time actually, Steve asked um, the family, you know, do you want to come, come to this along gig? To the show, I, yeah, <clears throat> yeah. I think they were playing at the venue, the old venue in St Kilda, and um, I remember being less than excited <laughs> by the prospect because I might. I was actually going through a, a really um, fortunately short-lived key, uh, synthesizer period <laughs> at that stage. But um, was, I, I remember going along to watch with some trepidation and uh, straight away thinking, geez, you know, this is great. They're a, they're a much rockier band live than yeah. they were on vinyl. It's um, often, the yeah. case, often the case with bands. You know, yeah, so it some, is. sometimes yeah. something happens in the studio and you just lose. Yeah, just lose tell something. Me, oh, tell me about it because um, I, I, do a, I do another podcast with Brian Mannix and uh, Kevin Hillier and it's about basically about music. It's called oh, Rock cool. and Roll. But where uh, Brian plays with a lot of those 80s standards, um, you know, Dale Ryder from Boom Crash sure, Opera yeah, and yeah. Scott Kahn from Kids in the Kitchen, Sean Kelly from The Models. I loved all those bands at the time, you know, but I there's this ongoing joke I, I bring up almost every week about how um, both Kids in the Kitchen, their debut album sounded like crap and uh, Boom Crash Opera's debut didn't sound nearly as good as, as they were live, you know. Um, you're right. And, look, one of my favourite bands of all time is Husker Do, the American sort of punk pop band of the 80s and most of their records sounded like absolute crap. It's a, 
you're listening to them and you love the songs, you know, but yeah. you're thinking, oh, how good would this have been with some decent production? So that mid-'80s period was just a real black hole for production. You know, they had the those synsonic drums that sounded like someone hitting a, right. a lump of wood yeah. and the guitars were all – everything was recorded really sparsely, wasn't it? And I listen back to a lot of that stuff now and it sounds really, really tinny. Right, um, yeah. And, and I, I like that. I like a big sound, you know, I like a big rhythm section and, you know, rich production and um, the 80s really seemed to conspire against that, unfortunately. Like, there's some stuff from the 80s, like, that I think has aged really, really well and I think it's precisely because, you know, I've, I think what makes music from any era <clears throat> date badly is when there's an over-reliance on the, uh, tech, the new technology of the time. So, like, yeah. the stuff, when I think of a band like R.E.M., for example... Their yep. 80s stuff still holds up really, really well. Yep. And I reckon that's I because the, it's it's all just, it's basically just a band in a room playing. You know, there's not much else going on. They're not going crazy on like all whatever the new, you know, synth is at the time and stuff. And it still yep. holds up really well now. And but yeah. No, I agree. couldn't agree more. One of my favourite albums is, uh, I did a thing on Twitter recently, a video series, my top 20 albums. And I think I had it number nine. Um, Life's Rich Pageant by R.E.M., which they recorded in 86. And exactly as you say, it's just a band playing. You know, there's no tricks, mm. you know, sort of tricking up the sound. And in terms of production, look, <clears throat> I did go through a – I mentioned my synthesizer stage. I, I was <laughs> – I was really, really heavily into Simple Minds, the oh, Scottish okay. band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and their early stuff is quite rocky, you know, even though they used a lot of keyboards. But for me, the sort of peak of, of not only their sound, but almost the best produced record I've ever heard is um, New Gold Dream, which came out in 1982. And that was produced by an English guy called Peter Walsh, who... Uh, it has worked with some other big acts, but it's just got a lot of the keyboard stuff now. I find very tinny sounding, but the keyboards in there in that album just sound really lush and yeah. and rich. And there's a real depth and a a fullness to them, which I think makes the record stand up nearly forty years later. Whereas a lot of that sort of mid eighties keyboardy stuff, you you just cringe when you're hearing it. You know. <laughs> Did you um, ever play music yourself or or did you ever um, go down the road of music journalism? Music journalism, yeah, I did do a bit of that. Um, back in the probably early 90s, I worked on the Sunday Age, which at that stage had its own dedicated staff. And, um, you know, obviously I was in sport, but um, I did used to write quite a lot of um, – reviews and i did some concert reviews and i did a few interviews too actually and it's funny you like it got to the stage where i'd get really sort of starstruck at the music interviews i was doing far mm. more than the footy interviews yeah, and yeah. too <laughs> i did a couple of great ones actually i remember i loved um did an interview with uh roddy bottom the keyboard player from faith no more um when they came out here in i think 93 and uh <clears throat> Another band that I'm still heavily into, Alice in Chains. Uh, oh, yeah. They came out in '94, and I did a an interview with Jerry Cantrell. Um, and I still remember he he uh, I interviewed him in the lobby of the Novotel in St Kilda where they were staying, and uh, 
invited me up to his room and I thought, oh, God, am I going to end up doing wines and coke or something <laughs> in a, a rock star's room? But he just um, he played me the demo of their Jar of Flies EP, which was about to come out. And wow. I remember I remember thinking afterwards, geez, that, that was a real buzz, you know. Yeah. And, um, yeah, look, I, I loved writing music stuff. Um, the problem for me with music, and I've just been talking to my 18-year-old son about this very thing, I, I am very narrow-minded about it like um you know i've done this top 20 album series and top 20 songs and there's a little bit of variety but it's fair to say you know guitar bass and drums are what i need to to get me interested and yeah so with the writing and the journalism i've got to ask you this because i've got this memory um of uh the so uh, so 1991 right and i'm living i was kid in perth and um, the uh, the West Coast Eagles, the team I follow, um, were in the. It wasn't their first ever finals campaign, but it was the first time that they made it to the grand, final. The grand final. And I ended yep. up getting belted by Hawthorne. Anyway, yep. During that final series, um, I, being you know both a a, a bit of a, a football nerd and yeah. a writing nerd, I kept a scrapbook and I used to um, oh, yeah. cut out articles from the West Australian and the Sunday Times and stuff, anything about the Eagles and. Um, and scrapbook this series, right? <clears throat> now yeah. I'm, I'm positive that some of those articles may have been written by you. Were you contributing to the Sunday Times in the West in the uh, early nineties? Yeah, yeah, it would have been because I think the West at, at that stage was independent. It didn't really, it wasn't owned by News Corp or anyone. So, right. I think some of our stuff they used to buy some of our stuff and run it there. So yeah, that that that'd be right. Um, uh, yeah, I think my stuff got a reasonable run over there. I, I went over to Perth to cover them a few times, and, and actually, I did. In I remember this in '91, about oh, about two thirds of the way through the season, when it became obvious they were going to be a, a serious flag chance. You yeah. know, um, I went over there and sort of spent a week over there and um, wrote a big a big piece on how it was all going. But I, you know, I was always my, my parents were both from Perth. Um, yeah, right. We <clears throat> we lived there as a family for a year when I was three, yeah. um, and came back again. But you know, my mum's a West Coast supporter. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, I, I, and I was always, I was always sort of more kindly disposed <laughs> to them than a lot of people. Right. Um, I always thought, though, and I still think this. Um, and apologies if if you don't agree with this, but I'm constantly having debates with. Uh, WA footy fans about the Victorian football media and, and their take is that you know the, the Victorian football media don't like the Eagles or Frio and they're against them and, and I, I would argue it really isn't the case. Mm. It's I think we're a lot better than that now and, and I think to be honest you know even Victorian fans they're sort of it's not antipathy towards those non-Victorian teams it's more uh, ambivalence, really. Well, that's and, exactly what I was going to say. But, yeah, but I, they, yeah, they would probably prefer a non-Victorian team win a flag than one of their local rivals. That's right. You know? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, there, there are really interesting, <laughs> interesting cultural dynamics going on between these two states. And I've been living in Victoria since two thousand and eight, so I've been here for right. a long time. And and so you know, I've got a, I feel like I'm starting, you know, have developed a fairly good um, kind of grasp of both sides and. That's what I try to tell people in Perth um, when we talk about the Eagles and stuff is, you know, I, 
I have to remind them sometimes it's like you got to remember that like in Victoria you know unless there's a scandal or something the eagles aren't really in the news that much people don't yeah. really care you got to and it is when you live in when you've lived in Perth your whole life following the eagles and I guess nowadays it would be the same with the dockers you know, you can you don't realise that um, that kind of media saturation that you're experiencing, it's like it's like the complete opposite of Victoria. Most people yeah. are kind of like shrug their shoulders. I mean, and then you look at at least with the Eagles, you know, Victorians they've been in the competition long enough and they've won some flags, and Victorians have got like a, a just a base kind of knowledge of who they yeah. are and maybe a few of their players and stuff. But then you look at teams like the Gold Coast and stuff, and a lot of people wouldn't even be able to name a player. You know, they don't, they don't know any, you know, they just don't. It's just not on their radar at all. No, it's a, it's a struggle, I must say. I, I must say, I, look, I guess the longer I've been involved professionally, you become interested in teams, I guess, development. So I always used to get excited about a team which was sort of emerging from, from nowhere to a bit of success, you know, what made them tick and that sort of stuff. And several times in that last I don't know, 15 years or whatever, that that team would be the Eagles. And I'd really be pushing enthusiastically stories about, oh, you know, I want to write a piece about, like, for here's a good example, when West Coast won the Wooden Spoon in 2010 and then in 2011 played in the preliminary final. Yes, and that was insane. that was a remarkable effort. Yeah. And I remember, I remember writing a piece, um, talking to various people over there about how, how this happened, you know, and it was... Funnily enough, or tragically in a way, Phil Walsh, the late Phil Walsh, oh, had a yeah. lot to do with that because he, he got them fit and they, their strategy improved and um, they did a great job with preparing the older players that season. And But it was a really interesting subject for me, just from a purely football perspective. And I, I wrote it in the end. Um, but, you know, you often there'd be a bit of a battle to get editors to be interested in mm. stories about non-Victorian teams. But mm. it wasn't. It wasn't because oh we hate the exactly Eagles. It was, yeah yeah it was because you know will will our audience care enough to want to read it yeah you yeah know? yeah the 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 the, the 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 hatred between inner city Melbourne clubs is is so much more intense and and that's I think the other thing that friends in WA don't realise too is that like um like in in W I think there's a feeling in WA particularly because the yeah from Eagle supporters particularly because the Dockers have never um won a premiership when they did make a premiership a few years ago i can't remember what year it was was it 92 uh no when the dockers made, oh, uh, played so in the grand they're final in, yeah, they're in the 2015 and um 13. so like i for myself and i feel like you know i, I can <clears> speak for uh, at least a portion of eagle supporters a lot of them us were kind of like oh well, you know if we're not going to be there i want to we'd love to see the dockers win one oh right? yeah um, there is still, no, it doesn't work like that here. It's a state for WA. It is still a state versus state team. But yeah, in yeah. Victoria though, there's so much deep-seated and long-held animosity between some of those clubs that they would rather see you know any interstate team win against their arch rival than oh god, another team, you know. Oh. And that, so that is a real fundamental kind of difference in the perspective between the two states and how they see oh, football. Uh, absolutely. I mean, it was like um, you know, well Hawthorne played Frio in 2013. They played West Coast in 2015. People here had had a gutful of awful yeah. right then, so West Coast had a lot of support, you yeah. know? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so this year, and I'll get on to music again soon, but one last thing about footy. 
Um, so that, you know, as we're sort of starting to reemerge now out of this whole lockdown thing and, you know, into this sort of phase now of slowly trying to get back into normal life. So the, the, the AFL season and other sports as well, but um, I don't know much about other sports. Um, AFL is starting off again soon. But, and, okay, so this is my, this is my feeling about it, right? And, you know, I apologise to, to you and everyone who's, uh, you know, <clears throat> got a vested interest in the industry. And I understand, you know, that like any other, it, the NFL is a business and like any business, yeah. like my business, you know, every business that's been affected are <clears throat> desperate to um, get back to work, right? You know, yeah. it's our yeah. careers and everything. So I totally understand that. I'm in the same in the same boat. But I can't help but feel like history Will, there will always be an asterisk against all of the whatever achievements, whoever ends up winning, if they do make it that far, and whatever achievements are made by any teams or any individuals, history will always have a little asterisk next to that. And because the season has been compromised so much and so much has changed and now, you know, the the structure of the season now with all the WA teams are going to be based up in Queensland. I mean, it's just, it feels like... It's been compromised so much that I just feel like uh, there's just going to be a, a lessening. Uh, it's going to be hard for people to get as excited about their teams achieving great success in this year because I don't know. It feels like the real thing. What what what's your perspective on that? Um, oh, look, I absolutely understand that point of view, and I I think that I shared that absolutely when it looked like. Early on, you know, we were talking about having a grand final in bloody December, you yeah. know, and stuff like that. And I, my view was, I mean, I again, I understood why they had to play for financial reasons. But, yeah, I was thinking that as well. You know, what is this a premiership you really want to win? Mm. I must I must admit, as things have looked up a bit, and look, we're, you know, we're starting mid-June. At this stage, if there's no more interruptions, we'll finish by the end of October. The schedules are looking pretty typical, you know, in, in terms of how the, the scheduling is, is structured throughout the weekend. Um, the hub thing is less than ideal. I mean, there's absolutely no doubt it's going to be harder for a non-Victorian side to win it. So absolutely justified concern. Um, I'm, I'm annoyed about the reduction in game times. I think... When when that happened initially, I understood why, but I can't see the re- need for it now. Well, what are the, what is the reason that they're giving for that? Because I don't. Understand. They're not. They're not. In fact, I've I've as we speak, I've just I've written a column for Australian Community Media, which is uh, a whole lot of regional papers around the country. But I've teed off about it because I think it's vested media interest pushing it, and and the same ones that are pushing the concept of the night grand final, and the same ones pushing the concept of a floating fixture. Mm. Uh, there is absolutely no logistical reason why we should have the shortened quarters. Now, I, I could understand them sort of saying, okay, well, we had round one on that basis, so we need to stick with it. I get that. But people are now pushing very hard for this to be the norm beyond this year. And yeah. I just think that's bullshit, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. And people like Eddie, you know, I have been ripping into Eddie a bit lately, but people like Eddie coming... I mean, there was this absolutely nonsensical quote from him last weekend saying that this was the perfect opportunity to fix the game up. And the quote was, um, he said, in Australia we say if it ain't broke, don't fix it, whereas in other places they say if it ain't broke, break it and then fix it and make it better. (laughs) 
Well, no, Ed. They don't say that anywhere in the world. Eddie, Eddie know, needs like, to uh, put out a book of... Uh, of, uh, Stupid quotes. <laughs> well, to be honest, he's sounding more and more like Donald Trump. You know. Well, like, you, or, just... you know who it also reminds me a little bit of is uh, David Brent. Because uh, oh, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. he was famous, he famous David Brent of uh, the Offer, the original Office yeah, yeah. show, famously said, yeah. uh, um, you know, about writing music. Um, you know, people say uh, write what you know. I say write what you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's all that sort of corporate speak, and yeah, he's just been immersed in that world too long, I think. But um, to get back to the question, I, I, I've, I've felt gradually more comfortable with the integrity being preserved. But and look, I th- as to whether it'll be considered to have an asterisk beside it, I think only time will tell. Yeah, I, sus- I suspect that a lot of people that are saying that now, when it comes to the crunch, might think. Uh, you know, it, it has been okay. But, again, I, I, I'm very dubious about the amount of people that are now saying this will be one of the greatest premierships to have won because <laughs> yeah. of the amount of obstacles. And it's almost like there's so many people saying it, it almost sounds like the AFL media department's got on the phone and said, hey, listen, right. boys, can yeah, you talk yeah. it up a bit? You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's the cynic in me which thinks that. But, uh, you know, I just... A little less hyperbole, I think, would uh, perhaps help those who are a bit dubious about it uh, come around. I think maybe once, yeah, maybe once the season gets started, once we sort of maybe once we get a couple of months <clears throat> into the season and things, if you know, and if, if all things going well, there is a bit of normality starts to return. Yeah, you know, it's it's possible that my opinion may start to shift, and I may sort of yeah. start to go, okay, now nah, this is all right. This is. This is still entertaining, but yeah, maybe it's just a hard. Like the last two months have just been so fucking weird and crap for so many reasons that, um, yeah, maybe it's just kind of hard to look at these things and go, oh no, it's still good. It's just like, no, that's fucked. Twenty twenty's over. Twenty twenty shit. Let's just go to the next year. Look, the other factor we haven't mentioned, uh, and it's probably the most important of them all, is the crowds and. uh, Let's be honest. I mean, I, I watched all of round one and there were some really good games, but it was just that everything was just so flat without yeah. the crowds. I couldn't and watch I think, that first round. I just couldn't get excited about yeah. it. It was just it was too weird. Yeah, well, you know, I, I suspect you'll sort of get used to it, but there is now, uh, I'm just going on what I've been reading, but they, they are sort of seriously courting the prospect of having limited crowds at least. So... You know, I think if you could have a grand final played in front of, say, 30,000 people, um, that, that would certainly help. No question about that. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's uh, let's get into our songs. Now, normally, as people who listen to this podcast re- regularly would know, if you haven't listened to it before, uh, <clears throat> in the past, like I started off doing this thing where it was like, you know, choosing songs from your most played on iTunes and stuff. and. And as streaming has become more popular and less and less people were really kind of using iTunes that much and, and I sort of, that idea just kind of slowly dissolved and um, now I'm, I'm, you know, taking a far more flexible approach. Now, Rowan, you have actually been uh, doing a, 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 top, uh, a top song countdown on, yeah. your, on your Facebook. So what, what inspired that? Was it the uh, isolation or...? <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Well, I did. Uh, I started off uh, about a couple of months ago. I did top twenty albums. Yeah, it was. It basically was. Look, I'm looking for stuff to do, and um, you know, I'm I'm forever on Twitter and Facebook to a lesser extent. Um, 
but I, I love lists, you know. I, I've sort of there's been a lot of them around, but I'm that sort of stuff comes naturally to me anyway, and I'm always wanting to rank things, you know. So, <laughs> uh, and I do love my music, so I did top twenty albums first, um, and then I did my top ten AFL grand finals, and then I thought, well, I've done top twenty albums, why not do top twenty songs? You where know, did, and where, where did the Eagles uh, twenty eighteen grand final come in your uh, list? Did it make it num- number two? Oh, thank you. Yes. Oh yeah, no, that is epic. I mean, I should. It was amazing. I'd, I'd, oh no, that was that was incredible. Um, yeah, th- that was of the AFL era, so nineteen ninety onwards. Um, yes, I right. had that number two. Number one was two thousand and twelve. Um, Sydney beating Hawthorne in the oh, last yes, forty yes. seconds. Nick Malcheski's snap over. The, I mean, that that was the only grand final with three comebacks in it. You know, yeah, that was an incredible game. But yeah. 2018, absolute epic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was insane. Okay, so let's go through um your your top three songs from your um yep. your list. Do you want should we count them down from three to one? Do we do that? Yeah, thing? I think I think so, yep. Um, I should I should point out here too that uh, I'm very proud to say this and it was totally coincidental, but Seven of my top ten songs were from Australian bands. That's very cool. That is very cool. Yeah. Well, you know, and it's like it's justified. I mean, it's been. I mean, look. Obviously, we have a deeper connection to the music from Australia because you know we're growing, living in Australia, and growing up in Australia. You, the music can kind of speak to you, I guess, in a way that perhaps um, it uh, for other people it may not. But um, but yeah, I mean, I'm the same. Like I, I mean, I, my, I grew up. Going, the first shows that I ever went and saw were all Australian bands. As a yeah. kid going to all ages shows, and you know, this is in the sort of mid, mid, early to mid nineties, and um, yeah, when you know, when Triple J was national and had become this cultural force, and you know, used to go and see UMI and Tumbleweed and bands like that with you know three thousand other kids. Um, yeah, it was, yeah. and and yeah, like it was all local stuff that um, that kind of inspired me. But anyway. What's uh what's what comes in at number three? All right, number three um is one one of my all time favourite bands, the Church. Um, and they sort of run contrary to a lot of stuff I listen to. They're probably the mellowest sounding band that I play right. regularly, but I've always loved the Church. I just think um, I love the interplay between the two guitarists, Peter Coppes and Marty Wilson Piper. I love the um ambiguousness or ambiguity of of steve kilby's lyrics um i like his bass playing too i think he gets Mm. a real driving sort of sound um and there's a there's a sort of broodiness about the church which i've always loved and the 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 most atmospheric band i've listened to and to that end um my favorite track of theirs and this is number three is uh the opening track of their heyday album Last time, we're interrupted by the telephone. 
You didn't think they were invented then Oh no, we need miracles When you go blind and go We need slaves and roles and personal favors We need microphones and manifolds How can you be so invisible? Give me the nerves to see For people that don't know it, I think it is a bit of a fan favourite, but for people that don't know it, um, oh, you can find my countdown on my Twitter account there, but um, it, it's a real lush, um, mystical sounding track, it's sort of, but underpinned by a real driving sort of bass line and rhythm mm. section, and it always conjures very rich imagery to me of the the middle east and and the desert mm. and um yeah sort of places far from home and uh very uh lyrics that are very open to interpretation and every time i hear it it, it just takes me away it's just an absolutely beautiful track it's got um I'm, I'm not a guitarist obviously but i know it uses harmonics to to great effect um and you've got Cop is sort of with that sort of low-end guitar and Marty Wilson Piper doing the sort of pyrotechnics. Um, so what year What me, year was this it, one again? Uh, well, it's off Heyday, which what came out in 1985. 85. It was, okay. Yeah, it was the album before Starfish, which was right. the biggie. Um, but, yeah, look, if you're not familiar with it, um, and I've got to say, too, for anyone listening, <laughs> On YouTube, um, there was no clip for it, but someone did a one of those homemade film clips. It is the best homemade wow. film clip I've ever seen. Uh, it's just got all this beautiful vision from I don't know, some like a Turkish bazaar or something like that. <laughs> it's uh, gee, it's a beautiful track. I, I love it so much. Um, so yeah, that's that's my number three. Yeah, church. The church um, are a band that I didn't mm. grow up with. That I sort of, you know, my first exposure to them was under the Milky Way, which probably yeah. is is probably that would be <clears throat> their most well known song. Yeah, that's the song that most people oh, are maybe first exposed to. It's an it's a bit of an, a, an Aussie classic. Um, but but I did. It, it always it always makes me laugh when people. I've heard them called One Hit Wonders and whatever. I mean, right. like they, their first single, The Unguarded Moment, came out oh, yeah. in 1981, and that was quite a big hit. Um, and they're still touring. But, they're still touring yeah, America. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, I, I saw them. I saw them a year ago. They they performed the whole Starfish album. I saw them at the Palais Theatre. And, um, yeah, the lineup's a little bit different now. Marty Wilson Piper left a few years ago, but... Um, they're still sounding good, and they put out an album, I think, 2017, most recently. And yeah, Kilby, yeah. Kilby is prolific with solo stuff and playing playing gigs and stuff. So, they, I mean, they've had something like I think about 26 or 27 albums now. Jesus, yeah, right. I didn't know yeah. that many. Um, yeah, <clears> I mean, I love, I love the um, those those for me that they they have they're almost like a joiner a joiner band between like because obviously there's an Englishness about that sort of guitar. Yeah. Yeah, and and is, it was yeah. like a joiner band between two bands who I love, the Smiths, and but they've also sort of predate the Stone Roses with that sort of chiming, psychedelic um, kind of, you know, uh, glistening guitar. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I think that song, Murr, I think that song, Murr, you know, it, it reminds me heaps of, the Stone Roses. Now, the Stone Roses didn't start to come come about until the late '80s, 
Um, I was a huge Stone Roses fan. Um, yeah, right. And yeah, that, and I, but, but when I was into the Stone Roses, I didn't know the church. But, yeah, it's funny, like, go, getting back into the church and realising just how much I l- love that band and how much stuff of, of other bands that I've enjoyed is, is in that band and pre- even predates some of those bands, you know? Of, of that ilk, yeah, absolutely. It's funny you mentioned the Stone Roses. I've got both. They only did two albums, didn't they? Yeah. Well, I've, I've, got the, I've got their first two. Um, I, I must admit I don't play them a lot. But they, I, Yeah, they only did two records, but there's been a, yeah. you know, like any band who, like, you know, who become who are massive but only have a small amount of records, there's just been a huge amount of uh, reissues and... Um, you know, uh, collections and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, so sometimes yeah. you can get a bit lost in that. But yet, really, I'm pretty sure only the two studio records. Well, I remember actually, this is how long ago, but I remember that first album. Uh, Steve was my brother was very keen on that album, and we we both loved uh, what is it? She bangs the drum. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Fool's Gold, I like that too. Oh yeah, that was like the second one. Um, yeah, we, uh, me and my, you know, Jebediah bandmates, uh, um, we, were, we, we were obsessed. Well, there were quite a lot of bands we were obsessed with, but they were definitely one of a group of bands that we just, I mean, that first album is just, uh, it's a perfect record. There's no bad songs on it. And, and I guess, too, it was a, for us, it was an introduction into that kind of sound. And obviously, yeah. since then, you know, you dig back and you realise, oh, there was this whole scene and there were bands doing this for years before and there were bands doing this in different countries all over the world. But Stone Roses were was kind of like my, I guess, yeah, my sort of entry point to yeah. to that world, that sort of aesthetic of, yeah, just be, I mean, it's just sounded like, Stone Roses to me just sounded like the music that you'd hear, you know, if you walk through the gates of heaven, you know, it was just that. Yeah, no, I, I, I know. I know exactly what you mean, and there's also a, a sort of um, what's the word I'm looking for? There's a, a a developmental curve with that English sound too, because I mean, I you know, I I had a passing interest in them, but one band I did get into pretty heavily during the 1980s was Echo and the Bunnymen. Oh, and, okay. Um, they had that sort of, they had a darker variation of that guitar sound going, I reckon, but. Um, you know, another one of my favourite songs of all times, The Cutter, by them off Porcupine, which is a, a great album. It's funny because I've, I've tended, most of my most of my greatest musical loves have tended to be American rather than English. I, I have this theory that American rock bands were always heavier sounding than English rock bands, and mm. that's probably why I went that way. But there are quite a number of English bands I really love. Uh, Swerve Driver, that, that's oh, another yeah. English yeah, band yeah. I like. Yeah, 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 I remember them. Um, all right, so what comes in at number two on your uh, uh, Yeah, okay, so number two, uh, anyone who knows me wouldn't be surprised in the least by this. So I absolutely <clears throat> am obsessed with Rage Against the Machine. Um, first saw them at the big day out in 1996. Um, I, funnily enough, someone had given me their debut album to review when it came out, which was like four years earlier, and I'd played, I'd sort of zipped through the start of each track, and I remember thinking, hang on, this is rap, I'm not listening to this, and sort of put it aside. And then I heard Killing in the Name, which was the big single, and I thought, yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, But I never sort of went back to them, and then I saw them play it this big day out, 
And it was one of those life-changing moments. Yeah. I remember standing there just going, oh, my fucking yeah. God, this is incredible. Shit. And I, I raced home. I can remember racing home and putting it, digging out that album and putting it on and actually listening past the first 10 seconds of each track and going, oh, my God, how have <laughs> I missed this the last four years? Yeah. Um, so the, everything about I, – I, I love the rhythm section. I love Tom Morello's guitar. I love the anger I love their politics. I love the intelligence of their lyrics. I mean, they, they are, to me, I've never seen, I've never experienced more intelligent lyric writing than that band has. And people only ever hear Zach sort of yelling out, fuck you, I won't do what you tell me. Well, read the lyrics of any of their songs. They are incredibly political and intellectual and challenging, you know, so... Um, I, I could have chosen any one of a dozen Rage Against the Machine songs, but this is my favourite. It is uh, Bullet in the Head off their debut album. And again, again, this is a classic example. People hear Bullet in the Head. And the, the whole song finishes off with the refrain, a bullet in your head. He says it about a dozen times, and then he finishes off, a bullet in your fucking head. <laughs> but the, the song is about media manipulation. And yeah. the, the the bullet is the the crap that is projected onto the TV and people swallowing it up um, uh, from the media, from government, from corporations, and um, it's it's like a it's a drug, you know, and uh, and that's what the song is all about. But forget the lyrics; just as a piece of music, it basically the it's five minutes. Basically, the first two minutes are very typical, sort of. Uh, rappy, funky. You know, they've got a, a very strong funk metal type yeah, sound, which yeah. I, I really like. But at about the three minute mark, it just explodes into the the chorus. And you know, I, I just reckon that the most gloriously aggressive two minutes of rock music I can think of. Um, and uh, I just love love that song so much. And I've had this discussion with a number of AFL players, actually. If you were looking for pump-up music before <laughs> a game, you could not possibly beat that song. Yeah. Because it just has you, you know, every time I hear it, I want to go out and smash the capitalist state and start a revolution, <laughs> you know. This time the rock jump. Um, I, I can 
remember when Killing in the Name first came out, I was in high school. Um, I would have been in, yeah, year nine or something, year ten maybe. And um, I just, it was one of those songs, you know, similarly to when Smells Like Teen Spirit came out, um, where there was just the, like, and I, I, I know this sounds like I'm over, overstating it a little bit, but it, if there was a, it was a cultural shift. There was, it was a moment in time. Oh, yeah. Things fucking changed. That song blew mm. people away. And, you know, being a, at the age that I was too and being highly impressionable, you know, I mean, what, uh, I mean, he, he could not listen to that song and not be moved, you know, f- both emotionally and physically. It was such a moment. It was just the, the, it was a, a power that like I just you know hadn't experienced in other stuff before. And I remember you know learning the rip, trying to learn the yeah. riffs on guitars and all that kind of stuff. And yeah. I mean, yeah, there's just that sort of that sort of power and passion to steal Midnight Old um, Lyrica is just. I mean, there's it's very it's very accessible to young like teenagers you know i mean yeah, like because yeah, it's yeah. so visceral and it's just so yeah like, ah! um, no, absolutely and i i was feeling that at the age of you know 30 yeah I mean, I was, you know so um i i that's a really good analogy with smells like teen spirit because i've got no doubt that sort of oh that is a pivotal moment in rock music but the the mark of rage against the machine's greatness for me is that i'd never heard a band before them that sounded anything like them mm. and i and i haven't had to be honest i haven't heard a band after them that sounded anything like them there's been some who've tried but they're sort of like pale imitations it's it is a completely unique sound yeah you can't yes you can't outrage rage against the machine i mean like there's something you know you've spoken about you know the the, the rap element to them which is clearly there and um and yeah that that the sort of you know heavy metal kind of thing i also there's also a massive uh punk rock attitude about oh, that yeah. band you know and it, yeah. because the way that he that's why before we were sort of thinking about you know is he singing is he rapping i i, I don't know if i can define what he's actually doing because it's not like i mean when i think of rapping particularly nowadays you know it's can be very sophisticated and lots you know a lot of um sophisticated kind of fast lyrics um rage stuff you know there's a lot of repetition and he's not is you can you can actually it's quite easy to follow what he's saying because he's not going so fast all the time um and but it's but there's just this the 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 end the the when it sort of goes through that machine and it comes out the other end, you know there's a f- there's just a punk rock kind of fury and um, you know it's not even though it sounds huge and amazing there's nothing kind of overproduced or shiny or anything about it you know like the fact that Tom Morello the guitarist you know was, was so famous particularly when they first came out for the fact that he was able to make his guitar sound like he was you know scratching records or yeah. doing synth sounds and stuff and when it w- people you know when it was realized that he, all everything was just done on guitar you know that blew people away because they just weren't used to hearing that they just they didn't well, know they wrote it. it they wrote it on their record they made a point that's of right saying yeah. no, no synthesizers have been used in the making of this record yeah and it's cool that they did because if they hadn't have done that everybody would have assumed that there was all this other stuff going on but it's not it's yeah. just it really again it's just capturing um the amazing sound of four incredible people just going fucking crazy 
yeah. in the studio. And yeah, absolutely love that choice. Um, love that band. Have you seen um, the the YouTube video of the guy in his car hearing Rage Against the Machine? Yes. Oh, how yes. fucking good is that? Uh, yes. Oh, <laughs> that is, oh man. That is great. Just, that is great. And, you know, like, yeah, was, I've watched right. it a few times because there's something about, like, seeing... Some... People discover. Music. Oh my god, it's just the best. Yeah, well, what right? you what you what you've got to get onto. I don't. You might be familiar with it, but to that end, there's a couple of black guys. They call themselves Lost in Vegas, and they do exactly this. They're both into rap and hip hop, but people send them right. recommendations yeah. for rock tracks, and they listen to them, and they're really, really likable guys, and they're very open-minded. Yeah. And you can see them sitting there listening to, I'm just trying to think of an example, um, but, you know, some some heavy metal or something, and they'll be listening to it, and you can see them getting into it going, wow, this is great. You yeah. Know? Like, that stuff's awesome. I, I, there is... I, I'm sitting here talking to you. My hands are moving around. I, there's something about music that just – I get so enthusiastic about it. And as my partner hates me. Like she, <laughs> she, she doesn't have the same sort of intense love of music as I do. And I will hear something here and I go, you've got to hear this, you've got to hear this, you've yes. got to hear this. And, and she just hates it when I inflict stuff on her. But I'm so <laughs> desperate – for people to have that same buzz that I get from hearing something new that I love. You yeah, know? and it's wonderful, you know, to go through life. I mean, I'm 42 now, um, so, you know, very much entering in the middle age of my uh, life. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's wonderful to, have, to still have that feeling. I guess it's like love, you know. It's wonderful to still feel that, to still get that rush. Yeah. Of, yeah, yeah. of excitement from not just hearing something yourself for the first time that blows your mind, but also even just experiencing somebody else having that uh, feeling is incredible. Um, yeah. So yeah. So if if you go, if you're listening, uh, if you search on YouTube, uh, guy hearing Rage Against the Machine for the first time, and it'll be probably the first thing that comes up on the list. Um, all right, let's move on to the, the number one, Rowan Connolly's number one song. All right, of well, all time. okay. I've got qualifiers for everything. So the qualifier for this is, this isn't, I, look, I, don't get me wrong, I like this band a lot. I wouldn't class them as one of my favourite, you know, 10 acts of all time. But this song, to me, is just almost the perfect song. Um, the band is The Saints, uh, Australian punk legends, and the song is Know Your Product. Right. And it, it to me... I think it's one of the most instantly recognisable songs of all time. You, like, and it's the way it starts. It, I don't know whoever first thought of using a brass section in a punk song, right? But it is an inspired choice, and yeah. and it the way that that brass section just hits you in the face right from the start. Young and 
Jake got tricked by all his snarling locals. You know, oh, right. Which is the professor. Um, and you've got Ed Cooper's buzzsaw sort of guitar riffs and a really tight rhythm section. And the cynical snarl of Bailey's, you know, about talking about advertising and the lies of advertising. It's just all the elements of the perfect song coming together. And, and to me, I guess because of the brass too, it, it's a song where I can hear, it's a punk song ostensibly, but I can hear there's a, a rock sensibility about it and it, it's got really catchy, almost poppy hooks about it. You know, it's so mm, yeah. accessible. And I remember hearing it, you know, who knows why radio, radio programmers make the choices they do. It, it, it was criminally, not ignored, but underplayed. But I'll, I'll never forget hearing this song as a like a 13-year-old just going, oh, my God, this is unbelievable. Mm. And I still have that feeling every time I play this track, despite the fact I've now heard it literally thousands of times. And it's even the film clip, it's got a great film clip. The, the clip is just a performance clip, but they're all washed out. The colour's all washed out. It's sort of like the colour equivalent of sepia. And it just works. Um, and it, it's just, it belts you over the head. It's instantly recognisable. Even the length of the song, you know, it doesn't overstay its welcome. It's three minutes, 15 seconds, you know, almost the archetypal length for a, a pop song, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I love Chris Bailey's cynicism and that sneer. You know, it's a perfect punk attitude. It's with the brass. It's got a, a, an incredibly original sound about it. And it's just such a great riff, you know. And I, so I did my top 20 songs of all time and that yesterday was number one. So I had that. And, you know, it's very rare for me to tweet anything and not have at least one person go, oh, what are you talking about, you fat piece of shit or something. <laughs> but I, I literally did not have a single negative response to it. Every yeah. single response I had was someone saying, oh, yeah, great choice, love that song. I, feel, know, and- I feel like this song has... Um, has yeah, because like you were saying, when, I mean, I don't have recollections of it first coming out. Obviously, I missed that, but um, I feel like it's a real survivor. This song, I feel like it oh, stayed. Yeah. It's it's kind of had an amazing longevity, and even though I'm stranded is probably still the Saints' most well-known song, I feel like this one's pretty close behind it, and has and is still kind of. I I don't know. I think it's still part of the. I still hear it. I'm still aware of it. I still think that it's kind of. It's survived the last couple of decades and it's still considered an Australian classic, you know, now. No, no, spot, spot on. Well, I mean, it's it's over 40 years old, 78 yeah, it came out, amazing. you know, and uh, one of the reasons for that, I think, is it's a, it's become a real uh, staple of covers for Australian bands. I've yeah, heard United right. Oil cover it. That's it. I've heard, I've heard You and I cover it. That's um, what it must be. That's what it must be because, yes, you're right. Yeah. Midnight Oil and You and I, yes, I think I've heard both of those bands cover it as well. Yeah, yeah. It's just, um, yeah, you know, you're right. I think it's one of those songs that not only has stood the test of time, but it's, its legend and status has actually grown yes. the longer time has gone on. And that has to be the hallmark of a a classic song, doesn't it? That it can survive that long and still sound as fresh and still move as many people uh, nearly half a century later. Absolutely, know? yeah. And the, the inclusion of the brass too, you know, yeah, definitely um, 
gives uh, the song you know a really kind of uh, a uniqueness and and also too like it's really a, appropriate because man if anybody has ever stood in a studio around a brass section and it doesn't need to be a big brass section you only need three or four of them there is nothing louder and more attacking sounding <laughs> than a couple of trumpets you know or a trombone and like you know it leaves the electric guitar for dead when it comes to just pure like attack and no and and volume it brass is is uh top of the tree when it comes to that so yeah uh, and you can use it, it like i i love it i love it being used in a a rock context too like mm. i i used to love hunters and collectors they were another band i went and saw you know 30 to 40 odd times and yeah their their use of brass in a rock context was superb you know you can you can make a brass section sound really aggressive and in your face, which you don't. I, I think immediately you don't associate brass with that sort of sensibility. Mm. But I think the good bands are able to make it sound like that, and I think this song certainly did that. It's also for me personally, um, much like you know talking about before with the church and the Stone Roses. Um, for me, growing up in the you know, be, becoming a teenager in the nineties and sort of grunge kind of being my my thing at the time and my sort of real entry point um there's a really amazing connection that, um to grunge i reckon with this song like when i didn't know who this well, i don't think i knew who the saints were um in the early 90s um um but you know since getting into them in later years i look at a song like know your product um and if you take out the brass and maybe just slow it down not you wouldn't have to slow it down that much only you know a few bpm and it sounds like it could be a, a mud honey song it sounds yeah. like fucking yeah. mud honey and i yeah. wonder i you know i would be so intrigued to find out if they were fans of the saints because i know a lot of those bands from that era you know nirvana and all that kind of stuff as well you know with they i know they were fans of a lot of australian mm. music like um the yeah, scientists and um cosmic psychos i think as well and um so uh, there's, there was there's, there was a sort of punk rock thing going on in australia that those american bands that were if you know from the west coast were very much aware of so i'd love to know if um if those guys from Mudhoney were listening to a lot of the Saints in the, in that's, the early nineties, yeah, it's Mark Arm, isn't it? From yeah, Mudhoney. you know, it's that's a. As you were saying that, I was actually doing that process in my head, and I can hear it straight away. But I also, two other things occurred to me. One, it's been years since I played Mudhoney. Yeah. Three, how much I love that song "Suck You Dry." Yeah, yeah. I'm going to put on as soon as we finish our chat. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I started just. I, I only. I was the same. I hadn't listened to them in so long, but just um, during this period of isolation and stuff, we've been uh, just putting up uh, on Spotify, Jebediah, like a, a playlist. You know, isolation playlist. Yeah, yeah. And it's yeah. just a total. Um, it's just a total uh, nostalgia fest. So basically, because yeah. I had to give it some kind of theme, otherwise it's like, well, where do you start? So, um, so the theme was just like, okay, I'm just going to put all the songs that we were listening to in the years preceding the, the band getting together, because we were all friends for quite a few years before we started the band, and the yeah. stuff we were listening to in the first couple of years of the band. So anything from sort of 1991 to 96, 7, right? Yeah, right. And, um, that's, a, that's a very fertile era for oh, music, in my opinion. Well, it, me too, but obviously I'm biased because that's my, my coming-of-age era, but... Um, yeah. but so anyway, so, you know, collecting songs and stuff and they 
Mud Honey sprang to mind, and yeah, it's been it's the first time in ages since I'd listened back to them, and um, and yeah, remembered how much I loved them, and they were kind of you know they were almost more I don't know they were a funny band because they was they were almost more famous for their uh, position in the pantheon of grunge rock than for their actual music. Like they're probably so, yeah, one so, of those yeah, bands no. that like probably would never have even got the interest of a major label mm. in ordinary circumstances, right? They weren't just, they just weren't really made for it. And they sort of, you know, band, different to, much different to a band like Nirvana because Nevermind is a, a very accessible record and there's so much, you know, pop and polish and mel- melody and stuff going on there that it's extremely yeah. accessible. But Mudhoney were never that kind of band, you know? Like they sort That's of- true, though, although, although I do wonder. I mean, Nirvana's first album, Bleach, which I mm. love as well, I mean, that that is very raw, isn't yeah. it? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And, and you listen to what Butch Vig did with Nevermind, you just think, like, if Butch Vig got his hands on Mudhoney, how might they have sounded? But yeah. I, know exactly, I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah, I, I just I feel like for some reason, yeah, they're just – they're kind of like they're just in my from my mind yeah they they're just this weird sort of outlier in this scene you know they yeah. they're kind of like the, the, the I don't know there's something almost goofy about them or something that just just puts them always out of step with some any kind of mainstream commercial accessibility but it's some, it's, it's often the way though isn't it like highly successful commercial acts cite as an influence someone yeah. who never had that same exactly. level as commercial success yeah know? yeah yeah. Uh, all right, look, we've been talking for well over an hour, so um, uh, we should probably wrap this up. Thank you so much, Ron, for uh, agreeing to do this. Um, no, no, thanks for having me. I've absolutely loved having the chat. So oh, awesome, you. excellent. Um, is there any? So, do you want to? Is there anything you want to plug? Does uh, any folk out oh, there? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, um, okay. I, I uh, run the Footyology website. Not a lot happening on it at the moment. Until we're going. <laughs> there will be again, soon, though, right? In a few. Uh, correct. Correct. Two weeks from today, as right. we record this. Um, Footyology podcast I do with Mark Fine, who I used to work with on SEN, and. Whilst the games haven't been on, we've had a lot of fun doing... We do a segment called Vinyl and Video, actually, where we pick a year and we pick our favourite music, movies and TV from that year. Um, That's a lot of fun. So we're going to keep that going, actually, even when the games start again. So check out our podcast. Um, What else? Uh, Ruck and Roll is another podcast I do. Oh, yes, I'll have to check that out. Kevin Hilly. Oh, it's good for a laugh. Mannix is a bit of an idiot. We... uh, we, (laughs) We hang a fair bit of shit on each other on that, so that's good fun. Um, and if you want to, oh, I don't know, if you want to abuse me or you want to see me abusing people, jump on my Twitter feed because that's always uh, – some people tell me they they love watching me go off my crew on Twitter. I'm trying to tone it down a bit, but it's pretty hard when someone jumps on and for no apparent reason calls you a stupid fat prick. So um, – Rowan underscore Connolly is the handle on Twitter, and uh, no, if you if you haven't uh, said good day on Twitter, jump on and say good day, and uh, and uh, of course uh, plug the uh, Bob Evans podcast and all Bob's uh, solo stuff, which uh, <laughs> is very well worth hearing. I uh, yeah, I, I recommend uh, following uh, you on on Twitter. It's uh, yeah something, and then this is for a subject for another time, but yeah, there is something kind of refreshing about seeing somebody who's you know ostensibly works in the world of sport 
have such a strong uh, progressive political attitudes. It, I don't it's, know. It's not. It's not necessarily that common. You are right. Yeah, I don't think it's common at all. Um, I think no. maybe it's becoming a little bit more common now, just because everybody's becoming so used to living in a world with social media. But you know, look, my memories of a time, you know, ten, twenty years ago, was that um, you, you would never hear uh, people in the football world um, talking uh, politically, and particularly, you know. Um, it, I don't know. I always kind of felt like footy was a politically quite conservative place, and I don't know if that's still the case now or or what your. Oh no, I think it. I think it. It probably is. It's probably apolitical, but that probably the majority, certainly of the older people in the football media, tend to be more conservative. But it's changing. I think you know. Yeah. It's uh, look. I yeah. My background. You know. My my parents were, you know, very strong leftists. Uh, we were quite a political family, and. Um, perhaps scarily for some people, I'm probably the least political member of my family. So, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Ron. Take care, mate. Uh, cheers, Kev. Thank you.